this idea that government is beholden to the people, that it has no other source of power except the sovereign people, is still the newest and the most unique idea in all the long history of man's relation to man. I think that we have a core set of values that are enshrined in our Constitution, in our body of law, that are exceptional. What our framers debated that, that, that whole summer in Philadelphia in 1787. Our Constitution begins with the words, we the people of the United States. That is what it means to say that we have a government of laws and not of men. All right, hello and welcome to our next episode of Constitutional Conventions. I'm Zach Austin and hey, you're not John. I'm not John. I'm significantly shorter and have significantly less facial hair. Well, do you want to say hello and who you are, am, mysterious stranger? I am. I am Katie Mahoney. I'm one of the executive vice presidents of Yale FedSoc, which means uh, I tell Zach that most of his ideas are bad ideas, and he most of the time disregards it. Um, it's been a it's been a real joy to to work with you guys on this kind of behind the scenes, and I'm so excited to be here, particularly for this episode, because we're being joined today by Professor Joshua Kleinfeld, who uh, gave a talk for Yale FedSoc last month, and which I thought was one of the, the best events we had all year. So I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you, Professor. Hi, Katie. Hi, Zach. It's nice to be here. It's nice to uh, see you both virtually, and uh, it was nice to see you in person a few a month ago. Hi, Professor. It's so good to see you again. And Katie's right. So many of our members gave us compliments about how great this talk was in particular. And this is really something we're hoping to explore in future seasons of constitutional conventions, is getting a chance to do a debrief with speakers who come and present before the chapter and share their thoughts to a broader platform. And we think this talk in particular is, is really a great way to get the ball rolling there. With that, Professor, I'll give you a quick bio and then maybe we'll turn it over to a couple questions. Professor Joshua Kleinfeld is professor of law at Northwestern University's Pritzker School of Law. His research focuses on two things. First, the distinctive social function and sense of justice at work in the criminal system. And second, the theory and practice of democratic government, both as a matter of political philosophy and as a matter of public law. He received his BA from Yale College, his JD from Yale Law School, and a PhD in philosophy from Goethe University in Frankfurt. He clerked for Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, Judge Janice Rogers Brown on the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, and Chief Justice Aaron Barak of the Supreme Court of Israel. Professor, again, so great to have you. Uh, we're thrilled that you've come back once again to join Yale FedSoc on this next iteration of our uh, talk about political orthodoxy. So maybe we could start by just having you, uh, you know, summarize the, the talk you gave and what made it so special in the minds of our members. Thanks. Thanks for thanks again for having me. It's, uh, it's just great to talk with both of you and at one remove with your membership. My goal in the talk was to think about our current cultural wars from a new perspective. The standard refrain one hears in the cultural wars today, uh, when we're, people are discussing efforts to cancel speakers or silence professors or ostracize students, the standard refrain has to do with free speech. So conceived, the central issue is whether and to what extent universities should open and close their doors to speakers and arguments that some students and faculty find offensive. One side in that argument flies the banners of free speech. The other side flies 
the banners of social justice or argues that the ideas in question are so opposed to social justice as to be beyond the pale of decency or even constitute a pale of harm. And so the battle is joined between uh, the voices of social justice on the one hand and the voices of free speech on the other. Sort of an animating opposition, a thesis antithesis, to use Hegel's terminology. Sometimes the debate turns around a little bit. Sometimes uh, it is the social justice, do no offense or do no harm on the one hand versus intellectual diversity on the other. And I think these framings have a lot to recommend them, but I think in some ways they miss the point of the university and they miss the central value that is being put into a question on both sides. And so what I'm trying to do in the talk is a reframing. I'm arguing that the real battle is between political orthodoxy and scholarly rigor. And I'm trying to make an argument for why conditions of political orthodoxy make it impossible to have scholarly rigor. One way of thinking about it is I'm trying to anatomize the bubble. We've all heard that universities are a bubble. What's the anatomy of the bubble? How does it work? How do you break the bubble? How do you get to conditions of real scholarly rigor? So that's the unfolding of the talk. Part one is why should we change the framing? Part two is why is scholarly rigor so incompatible with political orthodoxy? Great. Thank you so much. I do want to um, delve into the details of the talk and of the of the emerging paper and project. But first, since we are likely talking to a lot of people who are in the bubble or about to enter the bubble or somehow adjacent to the bubble, I wonder if you can speak very briefly about your thoughts about your time in academia, both in law school as a student and as a professor, and maybe give some advice for those currently at or thinking about coming to law school. My own story of coming to law school had to do with sort of where I was in college and just after college. So I finished college having majored uh, for a time in music composition and then switched to philosophy. And I was pretty sure I wanted to be a professor of something, but I hadn't figured out what. I knew I had these sort of intellectual passions and longings and uh, I was trying to find my way to the right field. Because I'd majored in philosophy and deeply loved philosophy, I was thinking about philosophy, but I wasn't certain. And so I went off and got a job in Washington, D.C. The one thing I thought I was sure about is I didn't want to go to law school. And the reason for that was that uh, my father had gone to law school and become a lawyer and later a judge on the Ninth Circuit. And I think I just wanted to sort of assert my independence. I thought, I have to go be my own man, and that meant um, striking out on a different direction than law school. And there was a second reason as well. As a callow but passionate philosophy student, I thought that philosophers study the great and timeless things in human existence. They study uh, the nature of the universe, the nature of time and matter, the nature of logic. They study uh, permanent facts about human social relationships and justice, and Law professors, so far as I knew at the time, are the people who like think about good tax schemes and insurance schemes and other passing policy questions of the moment. So I thought I would fix my eyes on, on you know, the platonic forms. I laugh at it now, uh, but so I thought of it then. What changed was that as I read more and more about law and saw the role that law professors play in Washington, D.C., communicated with uh, some uh, law professors I'd become friends with as an undergraduate, I came to see the depth 
and fascination of legal questions and the ways in which many philosophical questions are being put into effect in ways that shed light on the philosophical questions themselves by law schools. And so, you know, kind of, I, frankly, if I'm being candid, I also went through a period where I was having trouble finding a job after college. And um, the combination of, you know, the pull of fascination with the law and the fear of being jobless uh, uh, helped, me, helped me sign up for law school. And my experience in law school was one of fascination and joy and discovery. It was also a discovery of an environment that was singularly ideological and sometimes humorless and inhumane in its ideological leanings. I graduated in 2006 and it's become uh, so much worse in, I guess, about the 15 years since I graduated that I have to fight despair now. I have to fight this feeling that the things that I love about the university in general, about the life of the mind and about law school in particular are being, being lost and as its worst tendencies towards uh, political orthodoxy and ideological fervor uh, are overwhelming what's best about the sense of discovery and inquiry in law schools. Zach, you were about to say something. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's interesting you bring up this process of discovering things and, and sort of how you came to law school because I, this is one of the things I found most fascinating about your talk. Look, I'm the first lawyer for my family. When I came into law school, I thought of law like a big board game. I like board games, and I kind of thought that's what it was going to be like. You know, everything sort of had to move, and we were just here to learn a very complicated set of rules. And you sort of took this head on, and I believe you called it a seductive analogy, but one that was kind of baseless at bottom. And I, I thought this was really fascinating, especially for those out there who are considering going to law school. And I hope you could just elaborate a little bit on what you said and what you meant. Thanks, Zach. I think many students are operating with a mistaken idea of what law is. In fact, what a law is. Like, what does it mean to say there's a law about that? The law says you may or may not, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what the very term law means, it, it, uh, it leads to an array of problems in understanding what is going on in law school, in lawyering, and in judging. And if I could share one message with the universe of people who are in law school or going to law school, it would be to correct this misunderstanding about what it means to talk about the law, what it means to say there is a law. The instinct is the one you were alluding to. It's the instinct to think of law as just a rule. We have we're familiar with rules from an analogy to games, like in chess, the knight can only move in an L, a bishop can only move diagonally. And the seductive analogy is to think that the law is just a very complex set of rules like the rules in a chess game. But in our legal culture, American legal culture as it's evolved, that's just not what the term law really means. Law is really the combination of a rule plus a reason on which the rule is based, plus a set of characteristic applications. Think of it as a tripartite complex. Three things. <laughs> it's like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? The equivalent, but they're, they're both one and three. The equivalent in law is rule plus reason plus applications. I think of it physically 
It's like the rule has something behind it and in front of it. Behind it is the reason for the rule, and in front of it is the set of characteristic applications. And to think of it as a beer rule, literally mistakes, and I use the word literally advisedly here, literally mistakes what the word law means as used in our legal culture. So let me give an example to show you what I mean by that. And I stress, this is just an example because the phenomenon is a universal one in our culture, but uh, here's the example. Think about criminal law in common law England. Defined murder as maliciously killing another human being. Okay, so what if someone kills another human being because of a mental illness, which causes him to think mistakenly that he is not killing a human being at all? Maybe he thinks he's chopping down a tree when really he's chopping down a person. Well, how do courts reason about that? They reason the reason for the rule, the reason for that definition of murder is that we're trying to forbid certain kinds of violent predation. And killing under an insane delusion isn't the sort of predatory malice that we mean. So the common law judges carved out an insanity defense. And eventually the insanity defense was codified by legislation and comes to look like a rule. But before it became a rule, it was just a pattern of thinking based on reasons. And after it became a rule, the grounds for the rule continue to influence how the rule is applied. So should a person who is depressed but not delusional get the benefit of their defense? And courts characteristically say no, because someone who kills while depressed is still acting with predatory malice. Should a person who is bipolar and in a manic phase get the benefit of the defense? Should a person who is schizophrenic and in a delusional phase get the benefit of the defense? Eventually, you get a pattern of applications, and those applications over time crystallize the meaning of the rule. Okay, so how does that tripartite complex of rule plus reason plus applications affect student learning? When you have that tripartite structure in mind, a lot of law teaching falls into place. Why do we have the case method? Why do we have discussion in class? Why not just lay out the rules in a PowerPoint slide? Why do we ob observe so much legal disagreement, uh, uh, concurrences and dissents and the like in judicial writing, or indeed legal disagreement in the classroom when we argue with each other about what the cases mean? And why is there this curious mixture in legal learning and in law itself between right answers where any competent lawyer seems to come to the same conclusion and areas of debate and interpretation and disagreement. Maybe most of all, why can't the professor just tell me the rules, set them out in a PowerPoint and get over all this complex discussion and debate and case analysis? And I think the answer to all these questions is that we're trying to make sure our students grasp all three dimensions of the reason, rule, applications, combination. The case method is ideal for that. Incidentally, this is not how the case method evolved historically. I think it's the best explanation for the case method as it stands. But the case method is ideal because it gives you an uh, instance of the rule being applied. So you see one of the applications, and in the typical uh, casebook example, will force you to think about the reasons why the rule exists and the way in which it should be applied in light of why it exists to the particular facts at hand. The reason your professors can't just lay out the rules, uh, because how we express those rules depends on the reasons that we think they exist for and the applications we give them. You say the rule differently depending on how you conceptualize its reasons. In fact, to give you a PowerPoint slide uh, with the rules just laid out in a simplified way, 
is actually quite misleading. It makes it appear as though the law is totally static or just based on authority, as though the law is, again, analogous to those rules in chess, but the law isn't. Uh, and so there's actually a kind of, um, I won't say this is true in every case, but in a lot of cases, just giving you the PowerPoint slide is misleading. Okay, other aspects of law school life this illuminates. A good exam is typically one that states the rule but understands the reason for the rule and states the rule and applies it in a way that's sensitive to the reason why it exists. And, I, and the last thing I'll say, why is the law sometimes definite and sometimes indefinite? I think it's definite because there are many cases where the rule and the reason and application line up in an obvious and uncontroversial way. So imagine a piece of legislation saying you'll be imprisoned for criticizing the president. Well, that obviously violates the First Amendment because the, the rule laid out in the First Amendment, Congress shall make no, no law prohibiting freedom of speech, and all of our typical democratic justifications for the First Amendment and all of our familiar applications say, no way could that legislation prohibiting criticizing the president fly. But now think about a more difficult case. Think about um, a statute limiting your right to spend money on campaign ads. Well, there, whether the rule forbids that, uh, that statute depends a lot on how you think about the reason for the First Amendment. And so we start to see the different schools of thought emerge and uh, disagreement about the constitutionality of the law. I should stop now, but that's the, that's the idea uh, behind uh, the seduction of thinking of a law as a bare rule. That's fantastic. I certainly wish I had heard that before coming to law school. I'm a big fan of rules, as I think many coming into law school are. So that's quite insightful. I do want to jump into the scholarly rigor piece. But before that, I want to follow up on the last thing you said, which is uh, the indefiniteness of many of these rules and how they relate to their reasons and their application. Is it the goal in law for the rule, the reason, and the application to line up in a way that kind of makes coherent sense in all cases? Um, so is is this indefiniteness of a, an indication that the law is still developing or is the mismatch between the rule and the reasons and the application kind of unavoidable even when we, when we have good laws and a, and a good system? Katie, that's a fantastic question. And I think it's one where you'll get a lot of disagreement among uh, different legal thinkers. What it brings to mind for me is someone like Sandra Day O'Connor or Justice Breyer, both of whom, it seems to me, thought of the law as a tool for a balancing of interests in the interests of long-term practical governance and typically favored fairly discretionary structures. They, um, they favored ways of resolving legal cases that, as it were, kept their options open next time for resolving it a different way if that seems best given a totality of circumstances. That isn't how I think of the law. I think of the rule of law as giving us definite answers as much of the time as possible. I try not to have unrealistic expectations about how often that can be. So what I want to see is in these cases where our sense of rule and reason split and we have disagreements about how best to apply the law in a given case or what the law is in a given case, the resolution of the case makes the law more definite next time so that there's a sort of progress toward definiteness in the law. 
Uh, and I think that's an ideal partly for um, rule of law reasons. I think what it means to be ruled by law is that we're not subject to the discretion of judges or other legal officials. But I also think it's part of maintaining democratic control over, over our politics because when the, essentially, when legal rules are highly indefinite, it functions like a power transfer to the judiciary or the prosecutors or the administrative state or the other non-legislative officials who can maintain control over the way practical cases are resolved. And I think that kind of authority should belong in a democratic country, with the possible exception of constitutional context, but should belong to a democratic people. And so both for democracy maximizing and for rule of law maximizing reasons, I, would, I, I favor a legal order where you try to increase definiteness over time. But I think one of the mistakes the conservative movement has made is thinking that you increase definiteness just by treating things as mechanical rules, treating the law as mechanical rules. That's not right. You, you achieve definiteness by recognizing the ways in which the law is, as it were, an alliance or a, a, what did I call it, a complex, a tripartite complex of rule and reason and applications and working towards greater definiteness, greater alignment of those three aspects of the law in the next case. Well, let's turn now to uh, the scholarly rigor and political orthodoxy piece. You speak uh, in the piece and in your talk you gave us um, last month about kind of shifting the framework from a free speech ideology to a scholarly rigor ideology as the purpose or telos of the university. I wonder if you can talk a little bit first about where you get this idea that scholarly rigor is the purpose of the university and why it's different from freedom of speech. Yeah, the, the free speech framework has a lot to recommend it. Uh, free speech values are part of our legal constitution. Uh, they're part of the furniture of American political culture. Uh, they show up in the university in specific ways, having to do with academic freedom. So these free speech values are ready to hand and easily defended and extremely important. But think about the limitations of the framework. First, free speech arguments can almost always be turned around. So those engaged in condemnation or shouting down or ostracism of people uh, with outsider views, heterodox views, those people can say, you're limiting my freedom of speech. All I'm doing is condemning this other point of view. Second, an absolutist stance with free speech commitments, while rhetorically powerful, is implausible because a certain kind of speech control is just part of having a university. It's not like we think every physics department should invite an astrologist to speak or every medical school should invite a wicket. That part of the nature of the university is to make quality judgments about what's a reasonable argument. Indeed, fields have methodological commitments that sort of rule certain kinds of arguments in and out of the box. There's arguments you can make in a in an economics department that might not work in the psychology department and vice versa. And uh, indeed, we judge speech. If a student writes me a paper and I think it's a bad paper, I give it a bad grade. Uh, and that is a kind of judgment of speech. So there's, a, there's something implausible about an absolutist right of free speech. But I think the most serious problem is that when the issue is cast as one of free speech, the debate becomes a question of to what extent the forces of righteousness should tolerate, it's a toleration framework, should tolerate 
the forces of evil. Uh, this is very familiar from the religious conflicts of, of European history. You think about, in medieval Europe, devout Christians faced with resident Jews and Muslims, and the question facing them was always the extent, it was always the question, well, to what extent should we tolerate Jewish and Muslim ideas or people in our midst? And there was an obvious response. If you're sincerely uh, pious, if you really believe that Christian ideas are the truth and the light, there's no reason to tolerate your resident uh, Jews and Muslims. And sometimes there were philosophers who could think of clever ways to think themselves out of that uh, toleration paradox, but often um, it was so tempting. It was so tempting to the mind that the degree to which you were intolerant towards the people who are just wrong or bad or evil became a measure of your Christian piety. And so we see the same thing with cancel culture. Should you tolerate conservative ideas that are um, against the views about justice, the views about race, the views about gender, the views about sexuality that are characteristic of uh, wokeism or cancel culture? Well, if you're really, really committed to those ideas, why should you tolerate these evil, racist, unjust, oppressive ideas on the other side? Now, none of that is to denigrate the value of the free speech framework. It's a precious, free speech is a precious value, and I don't mean to diminish it. But I want to highlight these problems to show why continually saying, you know, if, if one, put it this way, if one side is saying idea X is substantively bad or evil, and the other side is saying, we have a right to voice idea X. The second position is in a defensive crouch from the jump. And that's a very, very ineffective position. So it strikes me that under either of these frameworks, right, under the scholarly rigor framework or under the free speech framework, you need some sort of limiting device. As you say, we don't, we don't tolerate every type of idea in a university. If someone writes you a bad paper, you judge it accordingly. Under your framework, the scholarly rigor framework, how do you come up with those limits? Um, and how do you avoid having the, the bubble that you've talked about kind of dictate what scholarly rigor means? Well, let's start with what scholarly rigor really means. I think what we call scholarly rigor today is what in prior decades or centuries was just called the faculty of reason. Uh, scholarly rigor refers to our central mission as a university, the mission that unites our teaching function and our research function, the mission of thinking about ideas well, uh, modeling critical thought. You can think of it as, a, as the distinctive form of excellence that professors are supposed to embody and teach, the ability to engage skillfully in the activity of idea production and evaluation, to think well, to think with excellence. That's what scholarly rigor is all about. And then you can start, and Katie, here's where we get to the real answer to your question. What are the conditions in which scholarly rigor so conceived can obtain? Because it turns out that scholarly rigor is pretty fragile. There are long epochs in uh, American and European history of universities in which scholarly rigor was just lost, in which everything interesting that was happening in the world of ideas was happening outside of the universities. Consider this. Uh, I study political philosophy and political theory. It is striking how few of the major political theorists of the English Enlightenment and Counter-Enlightenment were university professors. Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, David Hume, 
Edmund Burke, Jeremy Bentham, John Stuart Mill. That's 300 years of English intellectual life, and not one held a university professorship. And not for want of trying. They wanted, many of them wanted university professorships and just couldn't get them. I became puzzled enough by this phenomenon to look at what was going on in Oxford and Cambridge uh, uh, at the time. And as far as I can tell, they were engaged in forms of Aristotelian and theological scholasticism of a kind that just ignored the development of modern science and the modern state. They just missed the whole enlightenment. They were probably very skilled at their medievalist work, but they were places where intellectual talent went to die. Hobbes actually complained about it. In his autobiographical writings, he wrote of the, quote, barbarisms of scholastic Aristotelianism at uh, Oxford and Cambridge in his day. And I think that isn't just true in the old days. Think about more contemporary examples. Think about, like, classical music in the 1960s or architecture in the 1970s. You can look around your city and see all of these awful buildings that all seem to date from the 1970s. They are very recognizable and think, how did the entire field of architecture seem to go wrong in lockstep at the same time? And the whole country, maybe the whole world is crying out, we don't like this kind of architecture and it doesn't seem to matter. The world of architecture goes in a certain direction that is just insensitive to what the vast majority of human beings think is beautiful or functional. And likewise, uh, classical music can just collectively go in the wrong direction. It's, it's interesting to start to analyze what leads whole fields or the university as a whole to collectively go in the wrong direction. And here's where we get to the punchline. Here's where we are. We see that universities have this constitutive commitment to scholarly rigor that's supposed to define their mission, but that that commitment, that scholarly rigor is highly fragile and it goes wrong with some frequency in individual fields or in the university as a whole, we start to think about the conditions in which it can obtain, conditions in which universities can actually live up to the ideal of real scholarly rigor. And I think what you see is where there is political orthodoxy, where there is a, a political might be too narrow, where there is an ideological bubble, there you have a diminishment of rigor. So you talked about identifying these bubbles in the Enlightenment and in the 20th century. It seems that we it, it's a little bit easier to identify them after the fact, after we've kind of come back from them. Is there a danger of trying to identify them while you're in them? And do you need to use different tools in order to figure out where your biases are coming from uh, as an institution while you're currently embodying them? That's a great question, but as as it is so often impossible to recognize the historical epoch you're in until after it has passed. Hegel uh, wrote that the owl of Minerva uh, flies at dusk. We can only see clearly the, the historical moment we've been in once it is passing away. But I don't think that's true in this case because it is fairly easy to, fairly easy, not altogether easy, but it is relatively easy to, to recognize when there is a high degree of ideological uniformity in a particular institution or department. So, you know, can we recognize that, say, the hiring structure at economics department X at university Y is highly ideologically unified? 
And there it is actually possible to just see the degree to which, well, there's maybe a structure in place where the members of the department choose all new members and they have very strong preferences and they choose people who reflect those preferences. Maybe they choose, they only admit graduate students who reflect those preferences. They might be literally political, like it might be preferences for the Democratic Party. It is startling. Uh, there are, are various studies of party affiliation or political donations in university academic departments, and you can observe the degree of very, very, very high degrees of uniformity. But you can also look at structures in place. You can say, well, to what degree, to what degree is the hiring structure similar to a fraternity? The, the current members choose all new members, and to what extent does it allow outside voices to influence? To what extent are new hires essentially a form of replication, and to what extent are they uh, different from those that came before? To what extent do, do the people um, on, a, on a law school faculty resemble one another politically? And to what extent uh, do they seem more representative of the differences in political views that subsist in the general population? And so there are ways of seeing that we're in a bubble here. And this is where we get into the anatomy of the bubble. It turns out that bubbles, intellectual bubbles, ideological bubbles, are incredibly destructive of scholarly rigor. So let me first say just a word here about how bubbles work and what we know about groupthink and, and cognitive dissonance and related psychological phenomena. It turns out that when you collect like-minded individuals together, they heighten each other's pre-existing biases. And those distortions go to questions of both fact and value in really dramatic ways and push one another towards radicalism. So, for example, um, social scientists have collected people together and asked them questions, asked them to discuss certain topics. Uh, some of the topics uh, under discussion, how serious a problem is global warming? Should same-sex couples uh, be allowed to marry or be allowed to enter into civil unions? Should employers engage in affirmative action? Should the U.S. sign a treaty to combat global warming? A variety of different, uh, you know, politically inflected questions. Here's the interesting part. You get a group of people who are uh, left-leaning, progressive in their orientation. So they tend to think that same-sex unions should be recognized, that affirmative action is justified, that global warming is an urgent problem. You measure their views at the outset of their conversations with one another their views before they talk with one another. And they register a certain level of certainty and priority about those issues. They might think that global warming is a significant problem and is very likely to be taking place. They might think affirmative action is a justified policy and um, it's right, all other things equal, for employers to engage in it, et cetera. Put them together. Give them an hour to talk about with one another about that subject. And two things happen. One is they become much more extreme. The other is they become much more certain. So an hour after talking about global warming, those same people would be likely to say, this is the most important problem in the world and I am 100% certain of that. The same thing happens on the other side. Get a group of people who are very mildly skeptical of climate change. They think, well, maybe it's happening, but it's not human cost. Or uh, it's happening, but it's not the most important problem. It's one among many problems. Put them together to talk for an hour, and they will think 
there'll be climate change deniers. They'll say it's not happening at all and it doesn't matter even, even if it is happening. And likewise, with respect to these other issues, it seems like being a, a, together with other people who agree with us is, acts like a giant amplifier. It turns up the certainty on our views and it turns up the extremism of our views. And that is death to the scholarly project because precisely what we need to engage in good scholarly rigor is to doubt our views, to see the problems with them, and to engage in a continual process of self-questioning and self-scrutiny as we decide what explanations of the world are plausible and compelling and how good the evidentiary support is. Here's a question for you. If, if we've been dealing with this problem for a long time, you know, stretching back to sort of medievalist ways in the early Enlightenment, is there a solution that you're confident we can come up with? Like, are, is, is this a revolutionary moment we're seeing right now where something really is different and maybe it is easy to combat? Or is this just a long-standing problem and academia will always just kind of tend to be a bubble no matter what context it's in? I think what history actually shows is a kind of, I would call it irregular oscillation. So there are these periods where universities become essentially training grounds for the ruling class. That's how they function in Oxford and Cambridge in certain eras in European history and probably still today. It's how they function in the United States in the early part of the 20th century. And then there are these phenomena that tend to break that uh, uniformity. And for example, uh, the SAT was a major factor in breaking the... Uh, people don't know the history of standardized testing. The history of standardized testing is actually an egalitarian effort to break the hegemony of the American WASP ruling class. And it was a highly successful one of bringing all sorts of people in who are outside the existing power structure and upending the old order of professors and students and administrators and ushering in a period of serious critical inquiry, which turns out to be fragile. And I think we're in a new era of training the ruling class in a unified ideology that renders people acceptable to employers. So, Zach, it isn't that it isn't that it's just a permanent fact about universities. It's more like it's a permanent tendency of universities. There's this temptation to ideological orthodoxy, and uh, we do our best to fight it, and in some areas we lose, and in some we win. So is there, is there reason to be hopeful, or is all hope lost? <laughs> um, these are difficult times, and I don't for a moment want to minimize how hard it is to maintain hope when it seems like the whole power structure of the university is against uh, a real diversity of ideas and uh, a, a genuine commitment to critical reasoning. And at times, it seems like ideological training has just taken hold and uh, taken precedence over any kind of real critical inquiry. But what I'd stress is that hope is a moral obligation. My favorite scene in all movies is in Lord of the Rings. It's in the preparation for the Battle of Helm's Deep. When Legolas, who is the elf, uh, sees you know, the defenders of Helm's Deep arming old men and boys with rusted swords, swords, and he says, they cannot win this fight. They are all going to die. And then 
a little later, he kind of recovers himself and he says to Aragorn, forgive me, I was wrong to despair. And I love that line, I was wrong to despair. Because what it implies is that hope is a duty. It's not just an unbidden emotion that arises from our circumstances. We have a duty to hope. As an intellectual, I also want to have rational hope, which means I need a rationale. And the rationale that I can find in this case is the good sense of a democratic people. The real despair is in the loss of those democratic structures that would uh, allow the American people's good sense to prevail. If universities and other institutions of our cultural, economic, and social life are allowed to sort of maintain themselves in ways that render them immune from the judgment of the people, the we the people over time, then I think there really might be cause for despair. It really might be impossible. To, if, if the fraternity is totally insulated from any sort of democratic oversight, then I think we really might be in a situation where there is just a ruling class that has an ideology and nothing that happens uh, uh, within the democracy can affect it. But if we can maintain structures where the good sense of the American people over time can prevail, I think that these orthodoxies can be broken and this moment of cancel culture and wokeism and oppression of outsider ideas will pass and new structures will come into place. So I guess what I'm saying is that there's a moral duty to hope, but you've got to combine that with a reason. And my reason is my faith in radical democracy. Well, that note of hope is, a, I think, a perfect one to end on. Although, sadly, uh, we don't have enough time to keep talking. I know we could keep talking for hours and hours, and I would love to do that. But thank you, Professor Kleinfeld, so much for joining us this week, um, for giving us your time and for, for speaking to us both this week and last month in person. We've so enjoyed it. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. And we'll see you next week when, lucky for you, John will come back uh, and replace me. Well, thanks, Katie. And thanks, Zach. And, and to your listeners, stay strong out there. I know these are dark times, uh, but don't lose hope.